You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio with just a little bit of politics. Listen along as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today, where you'll learn valuable tips and tricks to make you a more successful hunter, shooter and fisherman. Here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting, and fishing radio. I'm your host, Jason Selms. Now, if you want to check us out, check us out at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au or email us at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. But on today's show for episode 37, it is Firearms Laws with Stephen Mainstone from Mainstone Lawyers. Now, what I wanted to say before we get into the show, I've got a little bit of a flu so hopefully everyone can bear with me whilst I get through this introduction. But if you wanted to find out more about Mainstone Lawyers, you can go to www.mainstonelawyers.com.au. Uh, you can email them at info at mainstonelawyers.com.au or give uh, Stephen's office a call on 95310322. Now, what I wanted to say before we even get into the interview uh, with Stephen Mainstone, I want to say just one thing. This uh, podcast is not, I repeat, not legal advice. If you have a specific situation that you want to contact Stephen about, please do so on the details I just gave you. Um, don't take this as gospel, even though Stephen has some excellent information that he shares on this show. Uh, please contact either your local registry or if you have a specific situation, a specific question, or you need Stephen to represent you, please go to the details that I just discussed. So again, the disclaimer is this is not legal advice, this show, and to contact Stephen if you had any issues. But to get that out of the way, before we get into the show, I got a few emails. I've had a, you know, about a couple every month. And uh, I guess on the show, people have asked me, you know, they don't, they don't know about me, Jason Selms, the guy that's on the show that brings you all these guests. So I wanted to spend before we get into the interview, just a few minutes to tell you guys about me, how I got into shooting, and I guess I've never actually done that on the show, so I thought I'd spend the next few minutes in telling you guys how I got into it. So I guess uh, 32 years old, I'm 32, I live in Sydney, Australia, out in Western Sydney, and uh, my parents uh, weren't shooters, my dad wasn't a shooter, uh, and when I was 18, I always had a keen interest in firearms from you know, being sort of pretty young, but I never got to be able to do it. I remember when I was in athletics and we used to go over to uh, Narrabeen to do the athletics. At the time, I'm pretty sure when I was younger, there was a, a clay target field. and I used to watch them over there and I was intrigued and I wanted to do it. But unfortunately at the time, yeah, my parents, you know, being a bit younger, were obviously a bit weary about firearms and sort of never really let me do it. I never really pushed the fact. Uh, when I was 18, I got my license and uh, I bought my first uh, Diana Model uh, 36, I think it was, air rifle. And uh, over the next coming years, I didn't really do anything in the firearms. I mean, I just only had the one firearm. Uh, I wasn't really in any groups or had any friends in the industry or in uh, hunting and shooting. So I didn't really do much. I just pretty much did the required shoots and that was pretty much it. You know, a couple, three or four range visits a year and that was completely it. Uh, probably around 2002, I was in my early 20s and uh, I met a guy at a, at a gym called uh, my mate Greg and he was from Dallas, Texas. And 
uh, went out with him a few times here and he was a great guy and he said, you know, when you come to the States, you know, you know, here's more details, we'll keep in contact and when you come, we'll meet up and come and spend some time in Texas. So about a year and a half later, I spent, you know, a, a, uh, working on a ski field in Maine, in uh, far northern Maine of the United States, just up north of uh, Boston, near New Hampshire, and I worked on a ski field there for a while. Then uh, from there, uh, I went to Canada, lived in Toronto, Canada for about uh, eight months. So it was about a year all up, and then uh, we got on a, uh, a cruise boat, and we were actually cruising down through uh, Virginia, and unfortunately at the time there was the Hurricane Isabel. We actually went through Hurricane Isabel, and uh, unfortunately the boat was damaged, and we pretty much had to get off, and uh, that was pretty much going to be the end of the trip before I headed home, because the boat was headed down to Miami, and that was going to be the end there. But unfortunately the, uh, it was cut short. Rang up Greg, and I said, Greg, mate, I'm coming down to Dallas, Texas. Uh, i got to spend a couple of weeks with you. Let's do this. And he said, mate, jump on a plane and get here as soon as you can. So that's what I did. Uh, then when I got down there, uh, he pretty much in introduced me to who I'm still good friends with to this day, a guy called Russ. And uh, Russ is a little bit older than me. I think he's in his mid-40s. And uh, Greg introduced me to him because he loved Australia. Uh, so that was my trip in pretty much 2000. And uh, that would have been 2000 and mid-2003. Uh, and then the subsequent years after that, I kept in contact with Greg. But it wasn't until about 2007 until I'd, until I'd returned to the United States. And uh, during that time, Russ had been over to Australia. Unfortunately, Greg hadn't. So I was, you know, and Greg had actually moved to Las Vegas. So I was actually looking forward to spending you know, some time with Greg in Vegas. Um, but first off, I actually got on really well with Russ too, and he became one of my good friends too, just on the same, on, on an even keel as pretty much Greg. And uh, when I was coming over there in 2007, he said to me, you know, Do you, are you interested in doing hunting? You know, I've got a cousin, David, that might want to take you hunting when you go you know, down there to, you know, if you're heading on your, you know, if I'm hiring a car to go down to San Antonio through Waco, he lives in Waco, Did you, are you interested in doing some hunting? And I said, hell yeah, I am. Of course I would be. Um, so unfortunately, Russ was working a couple of those days. So I hired a car, went down to Waco and spent three days with his cousin, David, hunting doves in uh, Waco, Texas. And let me just say, we went to Academy Sports and this is like, <laughs> it's like uh, I don't know, like like a big Costco of like sporting goods, shotguns. Literally, I was in there twenty minutes, and I walked out with a set. I think it was a seven day game bird hunting license, uh, which went for the series, or sorry, for the season of doves. So we went. So the three days we just hunted doves. Let me, you know, and I've got actually a YouTube video that's on my YouTube channel, Aussie Feral Control. And basically, you can go on there and have a look at that. But, I mean, those three days were really, honestly, just magical. We're using semi-autos. Um, just oh, fantastic. And after that, I was hooked. That was it. Hook, line, and sinker. When I got back, actually, in uh, two, late 2007, I think it was October, November, I actually checked out my license and realized it was two years expired because, again, I wasn't really shooting much uh, and decided, well, I better ring up and get that redone. So I rang up the registry. They were pretty helpful. Already done. Yeah, they said it was not really that far out. So just reapply and in three months' time, you'll have, well, two months' time, you'll have your license again. So I did that and ended up buying my first uh, Tika T3 Hunter in 223 and also a Model 1, I think it was in a Model 10, sorry, Model 10 Grade 1 Miracu, my first shotgun. Started shooting clays, I love that. Now I shoot mainly sporting clays, I don't really shoot anything else. And uh, anyone that knows me knows I love bird hunting. We go down to the Riverina, 
uh, on rice mitigation. This will be my fourth year uh, on the river, on the rice uh, mitigation. So I'm really looking forward to that again this year. I also love calling in foxes and fox hunting uh, when I get a chance. And I've also just got a bit of a bug for deer hunting. Uh, I like hunting goats and I love it all. I've got my pistol license. I love that too. Uh, I love, I said, love shotgunning and clay targets as well. So I just love it all. And I can actually you know, thank, I guess, not only Greg from back in 2003 for introducing me to Russ and then him introducing me to his cousin David. And that I can actually put down that dove hunt was what really uh, drew and you know, got me back into and got me huge, hugely passionate about firearms and hunting. I mean, it was the best time, and oh, yeah, it's so good over there. The laws are so much different. It's fantastic. Uh, and here I am today, almost, what, two and a half years later with a podcast. And I guess, you know, those guys are really what shaped me in the shooting, you know, in, in the shooting, I guess, industry and the sport, really. And if it wasn't for those guys and, you know, uh, being part of that, I probably, you know, wouldn't have really had anyone. Now I've met all these people. I've got some great friends. And it's just absolutely fantastic. So I guess I thank uh, Greg for introducing me to Russ and then Russ to his cousin David. You guys are the, are the people that really got me into it and got me passionate about it. So thank you. And I guess this show wouldn't be what it was without those guys. So, you know, kudos to you and respect to you guys. I'm still friends with those guys to this day. Um, I only spoke to Russ last week and then Greg about a month ago. So, you know, long-standing friendships. And uh, if you ever get a chance to go to America... People think like, you know, it's redneck country is Texas. Mate, it's a, one of the best states in the United States to go to. Uh, awesome hunting, awesome shooting, and, you know, really, really great people down there that make you feel very welcome. So anyway, I'll move on. That's a bit about me. Hope you, you know, that give you a bit of insight about what I enjoy and uh, what I do here and what makes me motivated to get these podcasts out to you. But what I will say, uh, on the 16th, I think it was June, uh, Reverend Bill Cruz made a uh, statement on 2GB, the uh, radio station, on his uh, radio show on Sunday night, which was his last night of the time recording this podcast. And he basically said uh, uh, shooters uh, basically have like sexual inadequacies and that law-abiding firearms owners or shooters that own guns basically had a sexual sickness. So... <laughs> Needless to say, this is pretty disgusting, from the, especially coming from the Reverend, a man of the cloth, Reverend Bill Cruz, to say something as crude as that, I think, you know, in my opinion, is way, 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 way over the top, and uh, an apology should be made, so if you want to jump over to 2GB.com, I basically urge everyone to basically... Uh, uh, jump on there and nicely uh, basically say, you know, that you weren't happy with this comment. And he basically should be making a uh, public apology, but I don't see that happening anytime in the near future. So, Reverend Bill Cruz, you should be ashamed of yourself saying things like that, especially being a man of the cloth and, uh, you know, especially that industry alone. I mean, I'm sure Reverend Bill Cruz wouldn't want to be. Uh, you know, basically put in lumped in with, um, you know, the child molesters that are happening in that industry at the moment. And I'm sure he wouldn't too. So why would he do it to us? I just don't understand where those comments came from. But anyway, let's move on. Game Council Governance Review, we're still waiting on that. That should be happening soon. So hopefully we see some movement on that because it is the mid-month. I think there was a two-week extension. So hopefully we start seeing uh, some movement on that and national park hunting. Uh, if you've checked it out too, uh, Robert Borzak was on the Four Corners uh, program and was uh, talking about why he likes to hunt, uh, Port Arthur, semi-automatics, and getting these firearms into the right hands. Now, I praise Rob for doing a fantastic job on that. Um, he's doing exactly what we should be doing. And I must admit, on my Facebook page, there seem to be a lot of people that 
uh, are mixed about getting Sammy Ordos back in the public image. Um, you can look, check out the 12-minute interview on my uh, YouTube channel at Aussie Feral Control, and uh, which yeah, majority of the ABC cut out, which was the important parts, where he talks about New Zealand and their firearms controls, which are nowhere near like Australia, and they haven't had a massacre since '96. yet they've also got all the same firearms that the US have got. But you know, it was a great interview, and that's what we start, need to start doing as a community. We start pushing forward for our rights and start trying to roll back these Howard gun laws. Um, you know, we're, we're doing well. We've got a lot of shooters coming out, a lot of these young shooters coming into the sport. We're building, we're building, and we're building. So that's good stuff. Uh, also, too, jump on the Facebook page, Australian Hunting Podcast. I'd love to see you on there. We've got almost 2,000 members on there now, on the uh, fa- or for 2,000 likes on the Facebook page. That's always appreciated. And you can follow our Twitter. Uh, you can follow our Twitter posts at AH Podcast. And as I said, if you want to email me again, AustralianHuntingPodcastGmail.com. Jump on iTunes. I've seen a lot of comments uh, on iTunes. So thanks everyone for that. If you want to jump on there, please rate us five stars and also leave a comment. You can check us out at Stitcher.com, but you can also jump on my website, my business feral animal control website at AussieFeralControl.com.au. AU. Um, just want to thank one of our sponsors, Australian Hunters International. If you want to check them out, check them out at Australia, oh, sorry, OzHuntersInternational.org.au. If you're a new person, you want to get into sport and you want to chat and get to know like-minded hunters and get some experience from some of the most experienced guys, uh, check them out. Join up Australian Hunters International at OzHuntersInternational.org.au. Top bunch of people. If you jump on the AustralianHuntingPodcast.com.au website, on the right-hand side, you'll see our donations are linked through to PayPal. Donations really help guys in getting this podcast to what it is today, and basically that helps me uh, get things out quicker, uh, gets new equipment, and uh, helps us what it is today because this is quite you know in-depth, this podcast, in editing and getting it all together, and I hope you do enjoy it, and if you do value it, I'd love you know, some donations through PayPal. But other than that, I appreciate you all. I appreciate the 5,000 people. People that downloaded the last podcast in one week, which was uh, Jason Spencer from Hunt, Catch, Cook. You guys are the best. And we've only got a four months until the federal election. And the Shooters and Fishers Party are uh, putting through Senate candidates. So again, go to the AEC website, the Electoral Commission website, and learn how to vote. Put the Greens last. These people want to take all your firearms out of your hands. That is a guaranteed fact. People like David Shoebridge, the Greens, Christine Milne, Lee Rhiannon, you wouldn't have any firearms if it wasn't for the Shooters and Fishers Party. So it's really, really important that we vote, and we vote strong at the next election. Don't be voting Liberal. Don't be voting Labor. You know, New South Wales, if you are, especially New South Wales, vote for the Shooters and Fishers Party. It's truly, truly important. So other than that, I say we get into this show because this is one of the best ones I think I've done for, for, for quite some time. So let's rock this show. Without further ado, let's get into my interview. Firearms Laws with Mainstone's lawyers, Stephen Mainstone. This is Steve Mainstone from Mainstone Lawyers. We're here today to talk about firearms law, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Steve Mainstone, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Pleasure to have you on the show to have a chat with our listeners today about firearms laws. Thanks very much, Jason. Pleasure to be here. No worries. Thank you. No, thank you. I know you're a pretty busy guy, so I guess... Could you just tell us you know, about yourself to start off with? I mean, how did you get interested in becoming a lawyer? I guess, how long have you been practicing for? And also how you got into representing uh, licensed firearms owners? 
Well, Jason, I've been involved in the law since about 1984. I originally joined the New South Wales Police and was a member of the police force for 18 years. During that time, I performed a number of different roles in the police as a general duties officer, then a qualified detective. I then became a police prosecutor, and it was during that time that I completed my law degree. And for the last three years of my service in the police, I was uh, a legal advisor to a number of, of the major crime squads, including the Homicide Squad. Uh, about 2002, I left the police and I went to work for a local law firm in my area. And one of the partners of that for, uh, firm was a, a keen shooter, but that partner didn't practice in that area of the law. So when I came on board with the firm, uh, he referred that work to me and I started doing work in that regard and, and built up a bit of expertise over the years. So I've now been working as a criminal defence lawyer and doing a lot of firearms work for probably the last 10 or 11 years. Wow, so you actually, did, I didn't know you were a police officer before that. What sort of, were you always planning to sort of get into that, you know, that law part of it or just something that sort of happened or...? Look, I think it was just a bit of a natural progression after going through the various areas of the police and getting involved in more and more serious crime. Um, I just felt I wanted to inc um, increase my knowledge of the law and doing a law degree was obviously going to help that sort of work and it just all flowed on from there. Ah, oh, fantastic. Uh, so I guess do you do, other, obviously we're talking about firearms laws today, but do you do any other representation of anything else obviously other than firearms laws as well? Actually, yes, Jason, I do. Being a, a criminal lawyer, I do every any uh, police matters, so any charges from, from the most serious right down to the most minor charges and everything in between. But I find these days the bulk of my work actually does involve firearms law, and I have a lot of people making inquiries with me because it's an area where firearms licence holders are, uh, are very keen in relation to their sport and in relation to hunting, and um, certainly it's an area where the police pay particular attention in relation to making sure that people comply with the requirements under the law. Uh, fantastic, mate. Tell us, uh, this is, was quite a few questions I got from a lot of people, but can you start off with just tell us a few stories. I mean, as I said, 99% of people generally always do the right thing. But can you tell us, say, a few stories, obviously with no names involved, but about cases where you know, clients have come across the police where they've either been charged with an offence or the Firearms Act, um, were the charges legitimate in most cases? Were they bogus? Uh, or was it just police interpretation of the law? So can you just sort of go into that? It'd be great. Yeah, sure. Not a problem. Many times the police, when they're doing their work, are, are obviously acting in good faith. Various police officers with various experience um, sometimes get it 100% right, but sometimes they also get it wrong. Um, and that's why we have a judicial system where people can take matters to court if the police bring charges against people. Um, an example of that was um, a number of years ago, I had a client who was a very experienced um, shooter and he where whilst he was uh, on a weekend trip between his range, he stayed at a relative's place overnight and he kept his um, firearm secured in his motor vehicle. Um, he kept it very well secured. He, he he had it in a, a locked box, which was actually cable tied to his vehicle. He had the ammunition separate. He had the bolt out of the firearm. And unfortunately, during the night, his vehicle was actually stolen from outside his relative's place. So when he discovered that the next morning, he went to the local police to report that his car had been stolen. And he naturally told the police that there was a firearm in the car, but it had been secured. Uh, so when the 
car was located, or I think the following day, um, the firearm was gone. And the police took the view that because the firearm had been stolen from his stolen car, that he hadn't taken all reasonable precautions to ensure that the firearm wasn't stolen. Now, he was charged with that offence. He pleaded not guilty, and we took that matter to court. At the end of the hearing, the magistrate hearing the matter in the local court agreed with the police insofar as saying that he um, hadn't taken all reasonable precautions, but then proceeded to deal with the matter under what many of your listeners might know as, or heard of as Section 10 of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, which means found, found him guilty of the offence, but then didn't record a conviction against him. Now, mm-hmm. we disagreed with that and appealed that matter to the district court. The judge in the district court hearing the appeal um, overturned that decision of the magistrate and said, given the circumstances under which he had secured his firearm car, just given the simple fact that it was stolen from his stolen car didn't necessarily mean that he had not taken all reasonable precautions. So the appeal Mm. was upheld and the decision of the magistrate was quashed. So that allowed him then to get his firearms licence back because the firearms registry, of course, on the finding of the magistrate, uh, decided that uh, that was sufficient for him to have committed an offence against the Act and therefore went to revoke his licence. So we were able to then, of course, get his licence reinstated because of the decision of the District Court. Yeah. Interesting, interesting one. Yeah, very interesting. Um, any other ones you'd be able to share with us as well? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, another client I had had a situation where um, police attended his house because one of his neighbours saw this fellow's seven-year-old son in the backyard of the house with what the neighbour thought was a gun, or was a pistol, um, but upon police investigation, it turned out that it was a, a, a black plastic toy pistol that the father had bought for the son a number of years ago just at a, a marketplace and had it, uh, had it in the house and the child was playing with it. It was a, it was a toy, nothing more. Um, and the police decided to charge him because of the child being there and having that, they charged this fellow with um, having a replica pistol in his possession. Now, again, we took that matter to court and we produced exhibits uh, which we'd purchased a couple of days earlier from, I think it was from one of the larger toy chains and brought those along to court when I cross-examined the police ballistics expert who was trying to push the case that this was a replica firearm and um, the magistrate um, decided that she'd have no no bar of that and it was simply a toy and uh, that case again was dismissed. Again, it goes to show, I think, that um, whilst the police sometimes can act in good faith, I think they can be a little bit misguided in regards to their interpretation of what's what under the Act. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, what about anything, any stories to do with, I mean, obviously you're dealing with um, licensed firearms. What about, say, uh, dealers? Have you ever had any cases regarding dealers or companies or anything like that regarding firearms? Mm, certainly. Um, I've, uh, I've just recently finished a matter um, only in the last week or so where a firearms dealer who has uh, been doing that sort of work for well over 30 years um, and highly regarded throughout the industry um, uh, upon a police audit of his premises had um, he had over 800 firearms in his possession and um, as a result uh, of that audit 
they, the police found that there were a number of, um, or, and a small number, I should say, of firearms that were in his possession which hadn't been registered um, as they should be as a firearms dealer registers them. Now, um, at the same time, he was also um, charged with um, not having the proper storage facilities for a firearms dealer. However, we successfully made representations to the police in relation to those charges to have them withdrawn because he'd had uh, at least five or six inspections from various police officers in his local area over about a 10-year or 11-year period, and they passed him every time. Uh, a new officer came into town and decided he didn't think that they did comply, but fortunately the police hierarchy agreed with our submissions that those, uh, those safekeeping um, facilities were far in excess of even the police guidelines and uh, withdrew those charges. In relation to the, the unregistered firearms, um, the court accepted to have them in his possession technically unregistered at the time, but given the fact that he um, had over 800 in his possession and there was something like nine firearms that weren't registered at that time, um, again, proceeded on the way of finding him guilty of that offence, but again, uh, not recording a conviction against him. Now the situation is uh, we now have to um, speak with the firearms registry in relation to him being granted his licence back, and we hope to be successful in that regard. But um, again, uh, what I'm trying to emphasise to your listeners, I think, is that, uh, for example, that police officer with the uh, with his safekeeping facilities, um, where his interpretation was they didn't comply because they didn't strictly comply with the Commissioner's guidelines. However, what he didn't understand was in the legislation that you can have facilities that don't strictly comply with those guidelines, or, but provided you've got alternative arrangements that are equal to or in excess of, then that provides a defence in that you haven't committed an offence because your firearm facilities are, are still as safe as they can be. Yeah. How long did that sort of case go on for? How long was that one? Well, that case uh, commenced around the middle of last year and only finalised last week. So um, sometimes wow. these things can take their time. Yeah, exactly. What are, you, what are some of the regular things that you're normally seeing? Is it generally around safe storage? Is it a multitude of different things? And what would you say, I mean, we could probably say one of the silliest ones, but what's one of the most probably interesting ones that you've, come, you've probably come up with in your, in your time of uh, uh, helping out clients with their issues? But what's one of the you know, inter most interesting ones you've sort of had? Well, I think, Jason, you could probably put it into three categories uh, where... I mainly assist people in relation to firearms law. One would be in relation to apprehended violence orders. The second one would be in, in relation to safe storage at home. And thirdly, in relation to the transportation of firearms. In relation to the matter of safe storage, I had a matter recently where the police alleged that a fellow wasn't safe keeping his firearms at home because they alleged that his safe weighed less than 150 kilograms and wasn't bolted to the floor or wall of his premises. Now, as most of your listeners know, if your safe does weigh less than 150 kilograms, it does have to be bolted to the safe or to the wall or secured to the premises. Yep. But this was a situation where the police just made an, a guesstimate that it weighed under 150 kilos, didn't weigh it. Um, and in fact, the, weigh, the safe weighed more than 150 kilograms, which my client knew, and when that was raised in court, the police officer under cross-examination conceded that he'd never weighed it, he just took a guess, 
and accepted that uh, it weighed over that amount because my client for the court proceedings, we arranged for, to get his safe weighed, and it weighed, I think, about 170 kilos. <laughs> what do they do when they're... Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I'm just... What, what do they do when they sit there and like the judge or yourself cross-examines them? Did you actually weigh the safe and they say no? Like, it's just embarrassing. It'd be just embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, I, I, I think it would be. I mean, from my experience as a police officer, if I'm going to make an allegation against someone and it's going to be tested in court, I want to make sure that I know what I'm doing at the time when I make the allegation and I can support it with evidence. Yeah, is that, I mean, is that just... Oh, I, mean, I don't even know what to say. Is that are they, like, Surely that would be your first point of call to say, well, yes, if, he's, if I'm saying it's, uh, I should know is the particular model uh, and ha- at least check the specifications of that particular model of... Of, uh, of of safe or what should you know, like how, how can you is that just that seems amateurish to me to make you know for a police officer of the law to sort of to, to to say that without even doing the just the bare minimum to see if actually the safe weighs over the 150 kilos well that's right and i mean um for your listener's point of view if that would was the case and and your listener knew full well that your safe did weigh 150 ki- or over 150 kilograms and the police came to you on a safe inspection and said you haven't got this bolted to the floor, um, you need to have it bolted to the floor, I that what you need to do is very politely but firmly say to the police officer, look, this safe weighs more than 150 kilograms and uh, it doesn't need to be bolted to the floor. Yeah, I know that's a lot of my guests actually uh, sent me emails and that was a huge, actually was quite probably about I reckon 10 people or so actually uh, emailed me and through Facebook said, you know, the police have come to their premises and said, no, no, they've actually said like it's over 150 kilos. They say, no, 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 it's got to be bolted down regardless. And these are the sort of things, you know, some shooters are having to sort of, you know, put up with and trying to be friendly and, and reasonable. But, you know, it depends on the, you know, the officer that comes, the licensing officer that comes out to check and there seems to be a bit of a mix-up going on about the 150 kilos. Yeah, well, you're right there, Jason. And I, again, I think it goes back to what I said before about um, some police are very much across the firearms laws. Uh, other police are not necessarily as far across them as they should be. They might only be new into the area, might be an inexperienced officer, and they don't necessarily fully understand or have fully looked at the legislation and uh, it can cause those sort of problems but as I said um, perhaps your listeners um, just in a very polite but firm way can say well if it weighs more than 150 kilograms it doesn't need to be secured um, because that's what the law is. (laughs) Well yeah exactly was that one obviously once you cross exact was that was that quashed straight away or? Well that 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 part uh, there was more issues in that in that court matter but that was certainly something that the um the magistrate uh, accepted straight away and said he accepted the fact that uh, the police officer was um, wrong in making that assertion in regards to safe and what his requirements were. Yeah. So what happens if, you know, like, sorry to go off a little bit of track here, but let's say they are making those allegations, unfounded allegations, and you go before, I mean, is anybody uh, uh, talking about, you know, compensation or anything like that in regards to, like, because you know, obviously it's costing you know a person to hire yourself to come and represent them and costing them probably quite a lot of money too to to represent them in court and is there any uh, reprimands for police making false allegations i mean i know they probably do make them in good in good faith of what they think's going to happen but if it's just at the end of the day not doing the required checks what is there any punishment for police in making such allegations or is it just well you know you're not guilty off you go it's cost you four five six ten thousand dollars to be represented or whatever you know depending on how much it could be have a nice day you've still got your firearms license like sometimes that's just not good enough and yes i agree with you and there are some sanctions that can be put in place there is certainly 
the discretion in a court in those circumstances where a court consider, can consider an application on behalf of someone who's had charges against them dismissed that have been brought by the police um, to have their legal professional costs paid. Now, it is a discretionary thing on behalf of the court uh, and what the applicant has to make, so the, the person who's had the charges dismissed, the, what the application has to be made at that point in time to the magistrate by their lawyer, is that um, because of the charge being dismissed um, that mightn't have been properly uh, investigated by the police. There are a number of criteria that the magistrate can look at. One of them is that, that a matter wasn't properly investigated and if, the, uh, if they'd properly investigated it, that it would have brought material to light which mightn't have brought the prosecution. Um, there can be even more serious things where if the magistrate is um, of the view that beatings had been brought in bad faith or there was a, a malicious prosecution. Yep. But generally on these sort of matters, it does uh, a lot of the time whether or not the magistrate is satisfied that the police investigated the matter properly. And certainly in matters where it's very basic thing like that, that I've just <laughs> you know, spoken about, <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of the time a magistrate will say, well, look, you know, this matter certainly hasn't been properly investigated. And um, it's a situation where in the interests of justice, given the, the person who's been found guilty has had to pay for a lawyer to be there at court and represent, can award costs. Now, it might not mean that they get all their legal professional costs refunded. They, they may get a portion of it, but generally I've found. And so going back to that issue that I spoke earlier about, about the, the fellow with the toy gun, where we had those charges dismissed, uh, the magistrate felt in those circumstances that in the interests of justice, he should get an award of all his legal professional costs paid by the police, and that's what happened. Yeah, interesting. Quite interesting. To finish off that question, um, have you got maybe one more you can share with us, uh, Steve, before we go on to the next question? Um, yeah, yeah. In relation to one of the other main issues I spoke about, which was uh, is apprehended violence orders. As your listeners probably know, that um, if a final apprehended violence order is made against the person who holds a firearms licence, that licence is automatically revoked and they can't reapply for a period of 10 years. Now, um, I had a matter recently where a fellow had an apprehended violence order made against him in the local court and um, this was... Um, before I became involved with this fellow. Um, he came to me after it had been made because of the impact on his licence. He um, is a professional shooter, professional roo shooter, and we appealed that to the district court, and again, the district court felt that there were insufficient grounds from the magistrate, or from the magistrate's finding, and quashed that apprehended violence order. Now. Following that happen, happening, I immediately wrote to the firearms registry and said, well, look, the reason why you initially suspended his licence was because of these apprehended violence order proceedings and you should therefore now reinstate his licence because the reason why he was suspended in the first place has now been quashed by the district court. Um, firearms registry have taken a very interesting view with that and said, no, we disagree because there was originally an order made by a magistrate, then that's enough for us to wow. revoke his licence. So at the moment, that matter is, is presently before the Administrative Decisions Tribunal on that issue. Our argument, of course, is if the reason why his licence was suspended or revoked now no longer exists at law, which is what the case is because the District Court quashed the magistrate's decision, then you've got nothing to base continuing to revoke his licence. 
unfortunately at the moment the firearms registry takes a differing view so that's that's a matter that's still ongoing and and uh maybe something i can tell you about in um sometime in the near future, hopefully with a, a good result that that fellow gets his licence back. Yeah, how, how do you, I mean, without sort of getting too far in it, do you feel that's going to that's hopefully end positively? I mean, I can just, I mean, it doesn't, it's, I don't know how they're saying that, it just seems like, common, again, common sense to me. Hmm. Look, I'm very confident that we'll get a good decision in the tribunal in relation to that. The initial indications from the tribunal um, in the early stages of the proceedings are that um, that seems to be the way that the tribunal is thinking as well, because that, that was something that was put to the um, the solicitor representing the Commissioner of Police and the Firearms Registry in the initial um, proceedings. So um, it's now at the point of um, a decision's being made uh, by the tribunal as to whether they accept our argument or whether they accept the Commissioner's argument that the tribunal doesn't have any jurisdiction to hear it because of the earlier decision. But, yeah, I'm feeling, feeling very confident on behalf of my client. Oh, yeah, good, good. I, I just can't... That sort of mind boggles me. And I imagine when this uh, podcast goes to where that's going to mind boggle a lot of people because yeah, even though, yes, it was given, but if it was quashed, I understand where they're coming from in theory, but hmm. if the theory isn't proven if you know, the the reason he lost his firearms license has been quashed and doesn't exist anymore. So hmm. right. mind boggling, mind boggling. That probably actually gets into our next question, actually, which is fantastic to go on to. Let's say you refused a firearms license. What avenues for review do you have? Um, for the person applying for the firearms license and w- what can they do? Because some people may be unsure where you know, an issue in the past has excluded them from uh, applying or getting a firearms license. What can they do? Yeah, certainly. Look, there is a, there is a process that can be gone through. Uh, initially, when you make an application for a firearms license or you have a license and it's been revoked, generally you have uh, 28 days from the notice of revocation being served on you or the notice of refusal of your application. You've got 28 days in which to seek an internal review through the firearms registry. Now, it might seem a a bit of a funny thing to say that you write back to them to ask them to review their decision, but in the first instance, you can write write back to the registry. You say, look, for these reasons, we'd like you to review the decision you made and... uh, overturn it. But once you get that notification, if that's the case, and they refuse to overturn their decision, that gives you another 28 days to make an application to the Administrative Decisions Tribunal, which is then an independent body from the Police Firearms Registry, and they then review that decision, and they can then set that decision aside, or they can confirm the Commissioner's decision. So there is a process available. Um, What I can say, though, as well, that your, your listeners need to be aware of, is that that is generally the case where there's a discretion in the commissioner to either refuse or grant the license. Sometimes, unfortunately, when a person has their license refused or doesn't get an application granted by the registry is because they have in the past uh, or have had an apprehended violence order against them that basically makes it a mandatory refusal. Now, if it's a mandatory refusal, you've still got those technical grounds of appeal, but it basically takes the discretion away from both the firearms registry and the tribunal because the legislation says if it's one of those scenarios, it's a mandatory refusal. The commissioner must refuse or must revoke the licence. And there are prescribed offences, and one of the other things also is, is an AVO that causes those sort of problems. So, yeah, sometimes... People can go right through that process and seek a full hearing in the tribunal, but unfortunately other times, and it's more in the, in the lesser 
percentage, I would say, of people who contact me, there are sometimes, unfortunately, things where people do fall into that preclusion zone of 10 years. Yeah, that's true. Now, we'll go on a bit more. I've got a few questions later about that one for some for some yep. listeners who will discuss it a bit more later as well. But let's say, you know, for whatever reason, for whatever offence it may be or alleged offence it may be, if you're charged with an offence by police, I mean, normally, as far as where they tr- they do try and at sometimes interview you as well. So what should a licensed firearm owner do in that situation, say, uh, of being charged and obviously, you know, being, say, let's say they're, you know, their firearms are seized or whatever it is and they're taken to the station or whatever it may be, uh, what should we do in that situation? What's, what's, what's some good advice that, you know, shooters should do? Well, generally, when a person comes into contact with the police and they're either arrested or the police want to, want to have them attend a police station for an interview, um, at that point in time, particularly if they've been arrested, the police have to basically read through a list of rights that you've got. And one of those rights is that you're entitled to contact a legal practitioner for advice. Now, my advice to your listeners in that circumstance certainly would be to exercise that right and to contact a lawyer. Yep. Uh, now, sometimes the police will um, interview, want to interview someone, not necessarily because they're under arrest or uh, as a suspect, but they may be just still conducting an investigation and they might want to interview someone and the person, they think that what they're doing is they're assisting the police by giving them a statement or being involved in an interview to give them information because the police are investigating something else. Next minute, that person, because of things they may have said in the interview, gets charged with an offence. So, look, my advice generally to all your listeners is if you come in contact with the police and the police want to interview you, um, it's always a good idea, I think, before you agree to any interview to ask the police to hold off on the interview to give you the opportunity to get some legal advice. Ring a, ring a lawyer um, who knows this sort of work, be it firearms work or criminal law work. Get some advice before you, you participate in an interview. Okay. Would, is it normally um, general for, say, a lawyer to, um, for, uh, for, or for someone that's being questioned in that situation, is it not uncommon for someone you know, to get the, the lawyer to be there at the same time when questions are being asked? Do you have to answer those questions they're being put to you during the interview? What's What normally happens? You don't have to say or do anything when you're in police custody that may tend to incriminate you. Uh, at times, I have attended interviews with the police um, where a client has asked me to be present and I've sat in on the interview, um, And but that's after I've spoken with the client and the client has indicated after receiving advice that they're happy to be interviewed. Now, the beauty, I suppose, of having a lawyer in there in the interview with a person being interviewed is that if the police start to ask questions that yeah. necessarily <laughs> might not be might not necessarily be um, in your best questions interest. that you want to answer <laughs> yeah. or objectionable questions, the lawyer can, can interject and say, look, well, I, I object to the question that's similar to like in a court proceeding. Yeah. I object to that question and my client's not going to answer it. So it gives you a little bit more control over the interview. In a situation where a person's there in police custody, they ring a lawyer, um, I've generally said to, or said to the police, they don't want to be interviewed at the moment. I'd like to be able to find out more about this, and it may well be down the track, be quite happy to be interviewed. But at the moment, until we find out more about the matter, they don't wish to be interviewed. The police won't push the issue because obviously they know they can't push the issue because they can't force a person to participate in an interview if they don't want to. Yeah, okay. Does that go for the same of being in custody? 
than, than say, you know, people, you know, obviously they might have some issue with something, as you said, wanting to come in, interviewing the person, then laying charges against them. Does that, does that go for both scenarios? Absolutely. Um, you don't, if you're, a, if you're a witness in a matter, um, as opposed to being a suspect in a matter, you still don't have to provide a statement to the police. I mean, a lot of people, if they've witnessed something and they want to help the police investigate a, you know, a crime in relation to someone else, um, look, they might be quite happy to provide a statement. But the police can't force you to make a statement in relation to a matter as a witness if you don't want to. There are certain, there are certain um, things that you sometimes have to provide information for in relation to traffic matters for example you if you're asked by a police officer to, to uh, and you're the registered owner of a vehicle and you're asked who was the driver of the vehicle at a certain time date and place you are obliged to supply that information yeah but but generally the police can't force you to make a statement as a as a witness and again the police can't force you to participate in an interview if you're a suspect now sometimes what happens when you go to a police station they'll say uh, we'd like to interview you they get legal advice. They then tell the police they don't want to be interviewed. The police will then say, well, we still want to put you in our interview room, put you in front of a camera and record the fact that you don't want to be interviewed. Well, again, a lot of police think that that's their right. Again, it's not. You can say to them, no, I don't want to go in front of a camera under any circumstances. I don't want to be interviewed. I don't want you to even record that I don't want to be interviewed. I don't want to sign your notebook. You don't have to do anything in that regard. Mm, interesting stuff. Ah, good, good, good stuff there. Um, yeah, no, that's that's really helpful because I know I've got a lot of questions about that too. And people say, "What do I do?" You know, just in case in the situation, some people don't know what to do, and you know they may not know. You know, again, they're you know they've never been involved with the law before, and, and something may happen that may come up, and they're not sure what to do. So they don't want to put themselves off on the wrong foot straight away. That's exactly by saying right. something that I, they shouldn't have or answering questions they shouldn't. And, yeah, this is some good stuff. But I've got another question too, and this comes about, as you just said, recording and, and the police being able to record. But is it okay to record voice or video in New South Wales, say whilst in the presence of a police, you know, a, say a police interaction? I mean, this may include, say, during a routine safe storage inspection or, say, a traffic stop or whatever it may be. Because I know, obviously, again, the police, obviously, now when they pull you over, I've been pulled over once for... You know, for going a bit too quick, and um, you know they do advise they they are recording. So, what are the laws surrounding video? Because I know sometimes in a general place, people, you know, everyone's got a smartphone these days or a little camera that takes these beautiful HD videos, and you sort of can't get away from it these days. So, what's what's our rights in regards to? Uh, and that may also include, say, CCTV at your home property that you might have on your house, and that footage. And just can you tell us more about, say, voice and video in New South Wales? Yes, yeah, certainly. Look, the only time really that you can't record a conversation between people is if the other person doesn't know that it's being recorded. Now, police have powers to be able to do that called the Listening Devices Act, where they can, to use the colloquialism, I suppose, tap a telephone or things like that. Um, but generally, it's against the law to record a private conversation unless both parties consent to it. Now, you might have seen recently, I think it goes back to... Um, the Mardi Gras parade in town earlier this year where there, oh, was, yep. some, there was a fellow that was um, being quite roughly handled um, by the police. Now, a number of people at the footpath were recording what was going on and the police, one of the police officers walked over and told that person to stop recording what was going on. Now, that police officer had no power to do that. Similarly, with the to record you when they pull you up um, in the car, the Highway Patrol officer might say, 
just want to let you know that we're recording this voice and we're also recording this vision from our car camera. Well, because they can record you, you're entitled to record them. Really? Um, some people think that if the police say to you, you've got to stop recording that, that they've got some power to tell you to do that. Well, quite frankly, they don't. Um, and so I would suggest, yeah, if you want to record a conversation when a police officer is talking to you, provided you say, well, if you're recording me, I'm recording you as well. Or if they're doing a safe, safe storage inspection of the person's premises, they're quite entitled to say, well, look, I just want to record this. The police don't have the power to tell you to stop doing it. Mm, good. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those videos. Yeah, I mean that one in particular. I did see that one, and you know, some people say, well, you know, you do have to if you've given a directive by police, you sort of do have to. If it's a reasonable request, you do have to follow it. And this is where people go, well, especially if they've got a firearms license, they're like, well, if I don't do that, I could be, you know, I don't know if I'm breaking any laws here, but am I? And then they just people often get scared and then stop doing what they're doing because they've been given a directive by police. They're obviously thinking about their, you know, firearms license. And unfortunately, these days it seems to be the way we're going, isn't it? Really, that everyone's, you know, got a phone or got a little camera, and you know, it's unfortunately sometimes it seems to be the only way to go to, you know, when things are coming up that it's the last line of defence to, you know, get yourself off something or to, you know, just confirm what you're saying, whether it be if something could be, you know, comes of a matter, for an example. Oh, exactly right, and I think, I think, um, as you said before, it comes down to in relation to a direction from a police officer in relation to whatever they do. As it comes down to the word reasonable. What's a reasonable direction? Now, police have powers to give people move along directions and things like that in, in, in public places and things like that. But it, at the end of the day, it comes down to what is a reasonable direction. Now, I, I know certainly that something that they're entitled to record is certainly, I would suggest, not a reasonable direction. It was my understanding that came out in the media a few days later that that particular police officer that told that person to turn off their mobile phone and stop recording was actually reprimanded they didn't have the power to do that so there seems to be some issues with firearms act and the, and the interpretation not only for from firearms owners but the interpretation of the regulations by the uh, new south wales police say firearms registry if we believe the correct decision say has not been made according to the legislation what can firearm owners do uh, to appeal and what avenues can they take i know you had something to add on to this one uh, yeah, Jason, um, I did touch on it earlier in relation to the Administrative Decisions Tribunal in relation to decisions such as refusal of firearms licence applications or revocation of firearms licences. Um, so I, I think I've pretty much covered that. But of course the other side of it is as well where police charge a person with an offence under the Act or regulations. So of course their avenues of right and review is of course, as with any charge brought by the police against a person, they have a right of either pleading guilty to the offence, which means they're basically agreeing with the facts as alleged, or if they disagree, they can, char they can plead not guilty. And if they plead not guilty, then obviously it's the prosecution's onus to prove the offence beyond a reasonable doubt against them. So they have to put on evidence to justify why they brought those charges. And if they can't do that, then at the end of the day, if the court's not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt, the onus is always on the prosecution to prove the matter. The person being charged doesn't have to prove they didn't do it. The prosecution has to prove to the court beyond a reasonable evidence that the offence has been proved. The court has a doubt on the evidence and it's a reasonable doubt then the matter has to be dismissed. Good one. I've got a uh, good stuff. I've got a question here from Tristan. He says, I know we're talking about prescribed offences before, but he says, do all criminal convictions warrant a loss of licence? And if so, for how long? Um, I guess we can probably touch on the prescribed offences, I guess. Not, not, not a specific ones at this stage, but you know, just in general. 
Yeah, certainly. Well, Tristan, in relation to convictions, no, not all criminal convictions automatically mean that a person will lose their firearms licence. Um, as I touched on earlier, and Jason, uh, you just mentioned then, there are prescribed offences which uh, do mean that if a person is applying for a licence, then their application must be refused, or if they already have a licence, then their licence will be revoked. Um, the prescribed offences, just to put basically into categories, are um, obviously the first one is offences relating to firearms. Secondly, offences of violence. Thirdly, drug-related offences. Um, those are the type of offences that fall under the prescribed offences that would cause a person with a firearms licence or wanting to apply for a firearms licence a problem. Um, an example of something that a person might get convicted of that's not a prescribed offence which may not affect the issue of a driver's licence, uh, sorry, a firearms licence, is in relation to, say, a drink-driving offence. A person might, uh, unfortunately, fall foul of the law at an RBT and get charged with low-range drink driving or mid-range drink driving and lose their licence for a period of time, their driver's licence, that is. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that their firearms licence is in jeopardy because, firstly, it's not a prescribed offence um, and, uh, therefore, on that basis, that, of course, if a person was applying for a licence, they have to declare whatever their record is and the, the police check on that, and that would come up. But that certainly wouldn't be something, if it was a one-off, that the firearms registry, I would suggest from experience, would have any problem in relation to a person being refused or revoked on that basis. Um, if, if, though, if you look at the other end of the scale and you were a person that it might have been your fourth or fifth drink driving offence over a period of 10 or 15 years, they may look at it from a point of view is does that person have a, a problem with alcohol which would then ring alarm bells to them as to whether or not they would be a fit and proper person to be granted a firearms licence. So basically I suppose to answer Tristan's question, you know, yeah, not all criminal convictions warrant a loss of licence um, but the ones that do generally mean that you've got a 10 year um, ban on being able to apply for a licence. Interesting, that gets into the next one. Again Tristan had a, another question he said, if served or at least given an interim apprehended violence order, you know, what should a person do, Steve, say, in this situation? Obviously, we know, as we just discussed, it carries the 10-year exclusion uh, if the AVO is granted. So what's the first thing we should do? Obviously, I mean, obviously, we need to take it seriously. Should we be contacting a lawyer straight away? What should we be doing? Yeah, again, um, I'd go back to what I said before about if the police want to interview someone in relation to a matter. With an AVO, the initial process generally is uh, police take out most apprehended violence order applications on behalf of people and generally they flow from domestic situations. What will normally happen is a police, the police will make the application, it'll be granted by, by the court on an interim or a provisional basis and once that's served, as soon as that interim order is served on a person, if they've got a firearms licence, their firearms licence is suspended and the police seize their firearms until the outcome of the proceedings. Now, a lot of the time I've had people make inquiries with me where people will attend court having been served with an AVO application and they'll go unrepresented and what generally happens at a lot of courts, the police have police officers called domestic violence liaison officers. Now they generally um, work with the person who's not been served with the AVO but the other party, the, what's called the person in need of protection. But they will generally come and talk to who's listed as the defendant and a lot of the time 
they will say to them words similar to, and your, your listeners, some of your listeners may have heard this if they've been in that situation. They'll come along and say, look, just want you to know, this isn't a criminal matter. It's just an order that we're seeking for the protection of such and such, so she's got peace of mind. If you consent to the order at court today without making any admissions that you've done anything wrong, you'll be out of here in 10 or 15 minutes and it'll all be over and done with. Now, a lot of people will go, yeah, that sounds fair enough. I don't, don't have any problem. I don't want her to feel you know, that she's under any threat from me. I have no problem with an order on that basis. I'm not making any admissions. But the police never say to the person, oh, and if you've got a firearms licence, once we serve the final order, you're going to be banned for 10 years. Yeah. This is the only one I have a major, major beef with. You know, I hear about these AVOs from some people. I mean, obviously, that you know, we all know there's you know relationship breakdown, some, some you know, legitimate some not so legitimate when people are making, you know, uh, complaints to the police. Now, why is it, you know, I guess it probably doesn't, doesn't come into it, I guess, but why is it that an AVO where there's been no criminal conviction recorded against a person, it's not in front of a court, or how can this ex- exclude someone for 10 years when, I mean, no charges are, this, or are at the stage of getting the AVO have even been brought against the person? Mm. Well, the legislation when it was brought in was brought in on the basis of that how it related to AVOs and firearms licences was that because an AVO stands for an apprehended violence order, of course there's that issue of the potential of there being violence. And as I mentioned earlier, a prescribed offence in relation to applications under the Firearms Act or revocation of licences, violence offences falls under one of those prescribed offences. So when the legislation was brought in by the government, it was brought in on the basis of, look, is if there's that issue of the potential of violence in a domestic situation, then if, even if a person hasn't been charged with a criminal offence involving violence, if there's an apprehended violence order made against them, then, then there's concerns uh, by the public in general and then because of the government um, wanting to protect those interests, that there should be the same sort of ban in relation to that that there is in relation to if a person was convicted of a, of a prescribed offence. Now, having said that, in relation to apprehended violence orders, what your listeners might not know is that the 10-year exclusion ban, there's a final order made against the person. However, in recent years, there's been amendments to the legislation, which means that um, during the course of an AVO, before it expires, you can make an application to the court to ask for that order to be revoked. Now, if that apprehended violence order is revoked before it expires, then that takes away that 10-year ban. It still places it as, as a discretionary decision by the Commissioner of Police and the Firearms Registry, but it's not a mandatory refusal. Um, and also, if the order has expired, there's now a provision under the Act there where a person can apply to have an expired AVO revoked as well. And I had one of those cases recently where a fellow had a had an AVO situation where the AVO ran for two years. It expired, I think, five or six years ago. He wasn't, at that point in time, um, a firearms licence holder, but he, he picked up an interesting shooting and he made an application and he was told, well, I'm sorry, you're still banned for another four or five years because of the 10-year ban. We put on an application um, under the Act and had that expired AVO revoked and wrote then to the firearms registry with a fresh application and the firearms registry granted him his license. Wow. <laughs> so I suppose the most important lesson for your, your <laughs> listeners here is if you were served with an AVO, again, you should seek legal advice and you should definitely not 
um, look at trying to get the matter out of the way as quickly as you can by asking for or consenting to it, even if you're consenting to it without making any admissions, because once that final order is served, until it's revoked or the 10-year period passes, then you won't have a firearms licence. Yeah, exactly. And I always tell people, I say, you know, like, always, you know, if something happens and a relationship breakdowns, I mean, it can be hard when things happen. It's not just relationships, I guess it means in any matter. Try and keep you cool, you know. Don't send, you know, I had a friend who sort of went through something similar and, you know, he was, you know, obviously like people do, they get everyone, everybody gets upset, don't they? And I said, you know, don't send any text messages, don't, you know, this can, you know, emails, you know, don't verbally say anything untoward, you know, keep you cool because, you know, at the end of the day, and he's a firearm owner too and he's a really nice guy. And I said, you know, yeah, tensions will flare at times, even if it's just a general, and I don't want to be sort of sexist in the matter, unfortunately, but, you know, sometimes women, you know, not, and whether they are legit or where it's not, unfortunately, men are perceived sometimes and can be, you know, yeah, the perception of men being the aggressors is often generally what happens. And, you know, I always say, you know, that seek legal advice or, you know, don't send any messages, don't send emails, talk on the phone and, and just keep your cool and don't get aggressive. And, you know, that way nothing can be ever said in, you know, if it does come up for an AVO that, you know, you were aggressive. Because people often don't know, you'd probably know that, Stephen, yeah, people say things in text messages and these things can be brought up in a court of law. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes what's... What's written in a text message can very much be taken out of context. Yep. And uh, it's certainly things like that are the sort of things that the police and a court can rely on uh, in relation to finding whether or not they feel there are reasonable grounds for, for granting an AVO in relation to a person. But, uh, yeah, uh, look, it is the case that the majority of AVOs for domestic matters, uh, I suppose the defendants would be in the majority men but it can work both ways and I've had I've had um, clients who are uh, ladies who are also firearms license holders who have been in exactly that position too where they've been named as the defendant so look it does it does go both ways but um, certainly the percentages are more that uh, as you say that the, there seems to be more in, in relation to men but the system the system is the same for both men and women yeah I've got a, we already spoke about the the, the safe weights etc and um the uh, legislation of you know uh, firearm uh, weights and keeping obviously firearms locked away. What I did want to talk about just before we go on to question sort of 19 is uh, transporting firearms. I know there um, when you obviously take a firearm. I know what's the legislation in regards to because I'm very very paranoid. I always say if people get in my car. You know, the, either, I know in New South Wales you, don't, you can have the bolts in the firearm, but obviously none in the magazine. But I'm always very staunch about keeping my ammunition locked away as well. Most of the time, wherever my ammunition is locked, I've got my bolt or whatever it may be. So what is the law on, especially, we'll talk about A and B category firearms, um, because that's what most people generally have. What, what, when we're taking it from, say, A to B, or what should we do when we say if we're also away for say a week? Like I mean, I go down to the Riverina every year and we do rice mitigation. Now, if I if I'm away, um, how can I specifically lock up that firearm? Like if I'm at a, saying at the farmer's house and I've got to go into town and we want to go out for a meal, you know, do you leave it at the house if it's locked up? Do you always keep it in your car at all times? Uh, do you uh, if you're in a, like say staying in a hotel, do you keep it under the bed? W what realistically should we do? And what does you know that that the law say about just keeping you know, that fire does that make sense sorry I'm not saying it correctly but hopefully you're sort of getting where I'm coming from that, no I understand exactly where you're coming yep. from look Jason um, the general requirements in relation to safe keeping uh, in New South Wales are that 
all licence holders in New South Wales, regardless of the category of firearm that they hold, are subject to the general requirement for the safe storage of firearms, which is under Section 39 of the Firearms Act. And what that basically says is that any person in possession of a firearm must take all reasonable precautions to ensure that it's kept safely, that it's not lost or stolen or doesn't come into the possession of an unauthorised person. Now, um, it's probably easier to explain or answer your question in relation to Category A and B firearms just to work backwards in relation to, say, Category C, D and H firearms or commercial transport of firearms. With... Um, with Category C, D and H firearms, um, there are more stricter controls in relation to that and the legislation says that they've got to be um, conveyed unloaded um, with ammunition kept in a locked container which is separate from the firearms. They have to be rendered temporarily incapable of being fired and that could be by the removal of the bolt or the firing mechanism or say using a trigger lock. Um, or it must be kept in a locked container that's properly secured to or within the vehicle. So that relates to those. Um, so when you look at Category A and B licences you spoke about before, um, you're still subject to the general provision of Section 39 that I spoke of earlier. Um, but if you're transporting them, I know this is not um, legislatively based, but this is, uh, this is the sort of guidelines that the Police Firearms Registry um, looks to in relation to transporting them. And they would say, or the Commissioner of Police would say, that all reasonable precautions have been taken in relation to Category A and B firearms if they're conveyed in the same manner as the C, D and H firearms. Okay, so um, that means, again, going back to being unloaded, ammunition being kept in a locked uh, separate container, uh, being rendered temporarily incapable by the removal of the bolt or the firing mechanism or a trigger lock, and or it being kept in a locked container that's secured to or within the vehicle. So um, whilst that is not a legislative basis for, in relation to Category A and B, and it's more the guidelines, obviously if, if it's the police who, who you're dealing with when you're out with your firearm, their interpretation is going to be what their commissioner says. Now, um, that doesn't mean that a court would agree with that, but generally if they're the guidelines that the police are saying that we want to see, if a person complies with doing that, well then they're not going to find themselves in the position where police might say, well you haven't done this as to what we want, and next minute they're before the court charged with not safekeeping mm, transportation. Yeah, I just had an example, like I mean, like some guys I know, they've got category A and B, they shoot clay targets now. I know the requirement to, you know, for an ammunition whilst in the home to be in a, a lockable box, that's fine. But what about, you know, I know guys that buy pallets of ammunition. I mean, how would you, you know, if you want, you know, going from A to B, fine, you know, from the range to home, you might have your facilities to lock up that mount in, say, a, a, you know, a, a locked area or a sort of safe hold or a, you know, or a room or whatever it may be, or a lockable box big enough to fit that amount. So how does someone then, if they're pulled over by police, say from A to B, from there to home, and the police so hang on this ammunition, even if you don't have a firearm on you, is it mandatory to lock up under category A and B to lock up ammunition, say, either to and from the range whilst the firearm is in possession? Like if I had, say, a rifle in like a soft bag and the ammunition is right there sitting, you know, wrapped up in, say, a, a little box that wasn't locked, and, and you know, it'd be similar, as I said, the large pallet of ammunition would similarly be the same. Is, is there a legislative requirement for that? That. No, again, as I said, there's no legislative requirement. Um, all 
All you have to do is to comply with Section 39 of the Act, as I said before, which means you've got to take all reasonable precautions. Now, as I said, if the police think that all reasonable precautions is their guideline for the same as Category C, D and H, um, if you didn't comply with that and the police stopped you, you might find that the, the police are taking a certain view and you're taking a different view, um, and then that might end up in court. But again, it would be for a magistrate to determine whether or not um, you'd taken all reasonable precautions. I think sometimes a bit of what needs to be looked at, I suppose, with, uh, in relation to your question, Jason, is just a bit of common sense. Um, if you're transporting your Category A and B firearms between the range, um, it would be probably just a, uh, the wise thing to do that to have the have the firearm with the, the, the bolt removed or a trigger lock or whatever means you wanted to render it incapable of firing, um, perhaps in the boot of the car. Um, because, as I said, the general provision is all reasonable precautions just to ensure that it's kept safely. Now, if, it, if the firearm's in the boot of the car with, with, uh, and it's been rendered incapable and the ammunition's in a locked box, box in the front of the car, I think you'd have a pretty fair argument to a court if the police wanted to take you on in relation to that to say you hadn't taken all reasonable precautions. So better to, better to go to the higher one and have a box than just to save you. I guess you can save yourself a lot of headache at the end of the day, can't you? Exactly, because at the end of the day, uh, the contact is going to be initially made between you and a relevant police officer, and um, you want to put yourself in a position where you want to be able to show that you've you've done what you believe is taken all reasonable precautions, and for the police officer to, to think the same thing, because if they don't believe you have, they'll seize your firearms, they'll suspend your licence, and you'll end up in court. Yeah, no, not not a good thing, mate. Second last question, but before we finish off, and this is one's a, mate, this is a huge hot topic, especially around the social media, and uh, we're talking about. I think talk about yesterday to to a friend and that, and personal and home defence. Now, I know John Tingle many years ago changed part of those laws in regards to the onus being on the police uh, for for some of those issues. But what I want to say, what's the, I know we had, we don't have a right really to defend ourselves with a firearm. Uh, and it, you know, for our families as well. But in case attack, let's say an attacker enters the home, uh, self-defence is not a valid reason to own a firearm. We know that in Australia. In saying that, though, if, say, if a person was to defend, say, their gift of life they're being given with a firearm uh, inside their own property, is the onus still on the police, uh, sorry, the police to prove the measure uh, was avoidable in the defence, say, of their life? It's a very interesting question, Jason. There's been a number of cases over the years where things like this has happened. Now, in an issue where a person is charged with an offence, be it uh, the most serious offence, say of murder or, or of manslaughter or even of, uh, of malicious wounding or assault, um, where a person is charged with that, again, the onus is still on the prosecution to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. But if defence are raising that the person did what they did in self-defence, they have to raise that issue, obviously, in court and would have to raise it by... Um, giving evidence as to why they did what they did. Now, once that's been raised by the defence, the onus shifts back to the prosecution and the prosecution have to negate that, again, beyond a reasonable doubt. So if, if the defendant raises the issue of self-defence as to what they did, the prosecution can negative it in the eyes of the court that what they did wasn't necessary to do to protect themselves in the, or another person in those circumstances, if that's negated by the prosecution through other evidence or the circumstances of what they did, then the person will not have raised the valid defence. The person would have to be found not guilty. But if it's not negatived by the prosecution 
In other words, the prosecutor, uh, the I'm sorry, the court is of the view that what they did in their own mind at that point in time, subjectively, was reasonable in regards to protecting themselves or their their family. Then, and it's not negative, then the court must find that person not guilty because they've established self-defence. So it all comes down to the circumstances as to what the person does at the time. If the so it really wouldn't matter about it whether it was a firearm, a knife, a bat. It all comes under the same thing. They're not going to look negatively upon it that in fact it was a licensed firearm owner that doesn't have any weight in it. Look, it comes down to it comes down to the point of of the actions of the person, as you say, whether it's with a firearm or or whether it's whether it's with a with a punch in the face and everything in between. As long as the person satisfies or raises the issue that they did what they believed was necessary in the circumstances and the prosecution can't negative that, then the person should be found guilty. An example would be, I suppose, if um, of, of raising it but probably not being able to um, um, be acquitted on that basis would be, uh, let's use an example, a person breaks into someone's home that person gets their fire, they're a licensed firearms holder, they get their firearm out of their gun safe, they um, confront the person, the person turns and runs out the front door, and then the person shoots them in the back. Now, obviously, that wouldn't be accepted, but let's use the other scenario. The person breaks into the house, the firearms license holder confronts them, they have their firearm, the person's running towards them with a knife raised above their head screaming, I'm going to kill you, and the person fires on them and they, they die or are seriously injured, then that would be a totally different scenario because the court would much more carefully look at the, the scenario that that person was in and what was going through their mind at the time. Yeah, just it's always a very hot topic, this one, because, mm. I mean, I know a lot of... Dread that anybody that I know or anyone listening to this show ever gets in this situation. It's a, I can imagine it'd be a horrible situation to be in, but we've only seen, you know, the Don Brook case where, you know, he's now waiting another two years before, you know, for stabbing that fellow, um, you know, over, was over at Yaguna somewhere. And, you know, he's got to wait now another two years before he defines, you know, if he's going to be charged again with murder or not. And I just think, well, you know, when someone has a taser and a career criminal and then the parent, the, I don't mean to, you know, say too much about the person, but to say that the guy was a, you know, a model, the family would say the guy was a model citizen and, you know, he did what he did in self-defense. I mean, it's hard to say what, what you, what someone individually would do in their certain individual circumstances. But, you know, if someone's entering your home to cause you harm, in my opinion, they're not really there to be, you know, have a come and have a beer with you, are they? They're there to either cause harm uh, rob from you or, you know, commit some other type of uh, offence, you know. And, I mean, I guess the point is we hope none of us ever get in this situation, but it's good to shed a bit of light on that to what, you know, this, the, you know, the, you know, what the police have to prove in that situation if something like that was to happen in that specific situation. But, again, I guess, yeah, individual circumstances need to come into, come into play. But, no, good stuff, mate. I guess first thing I want to say before we finish off, I just wanted to tell the listeners, remember, if you've got any issues... I urge you to contact Stephen before, you know, if you've got any specific questions or you've got any specific, you want him to get in and represent you, uh, give him a call. Because anything we've said on this show, in my opinion, is not legal advice. It's just Stephen offering some information. But if you've got your own personal circumstances, please give him a call. That way he'll be able to help you in the best way that he can and do the best job that he can do representing you. So, um, But Stephen, I guess that to finish off, mate, if people wanted to contact you or they want you to represent them, get advice on some of these issues, how can they go about it? So your website, email, phone, what can they do? Yeah, no problem, Jason. Look, um, my telephone number is 
Sydney 95310322. My email address is info, I-N-F-O, at mainstonelawyers.com.au. And my website is www.mainstonelawyers.com.au. Perfect. I do. I just, actually got a bit of late mail. I did have another question I wanted to ask. It's a real quick one in regards to, obviously, we're talking about New South Wales forearms law here. Do you deal with um, anybody that's uh, interstate if need be or any New South Wales residents? Or No, I certainly um, have dealt with clients before uh, from as far far away as, as Western Australia um, and, um, and South Australia. But no, I'm happy to deal with matters to provide advice to any of your listeners uh, no matter where they are in Australia, because um, there are similar to New South Wales in every state and territory, there is legislation. You'd be surprised how similar the legislation is right across Australia, anyway. So yep. no, I'm happy not only to deal with matters in New South Wales, but matters uh, wherever they come in from, wherever they are in Australia. Fantastic. You heard it from Stephen. So if you need any help, please do give him a call. Because I know, uh, Stephen, I spoke to John Tingle, Matt. He gave you a huge rap, uh, the biggest rap I've had on a guest so far. So you should, you must be doing something right if John Tingle's giving you a huge rap. So. Oh, look, um, I've, I've known John for a number of years now through through the work that I do, and John's been a big supporter of mine, and uh, and I'm um, I'm grateful for the support that he's given me and the recommendations that he's given. So it's nice to hear that he's he's given me a rap on your show. No worries. All right, guys, if you want to contact Stephen, you've got his details. So Stephen, Matt, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate. It. I know we're gonna. There was a few questions we didn't get to, but we've we've sort of you know f- for the listeners, uh, I'm gonna get Stephen on the show again sometime in the near future to, to address the other questions and hopefully um, you know, get Stephen on every so often so we can you know, get any new updates, interpretations, uh, any issues, again, he's dealing with. And you know, of course, sort of keep this law, this law thing going because, I, as I said, for a while, I didn't, uh, like as I told Stephen, I, um, uh, when John called me, I actually follow the New Zealand and um, Canadian firearm registries quite, quite, quite significantly. And there was a lawyer over there. And I used to think to myself, I used to think, oh, it'd be great to get someone on the show. Like um, it was actually a guy named Solomon Friedman who does actually quite a, he's on TV, does quite a lot of law stuff in regards to firearms owners in Canada. And I thought this would be great. And then literally I was thinking about it for about a month, maybe two. And then pop in came an email from John Tingle saying, are you thinking about doing anything to do with laws? And I said, you know what? Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I am. So it really couldn't have come at a better time. And I just didn't know who to speak to. And yeah, you know, literally an email popped in from John. He gave me your name, and you know, with a recommendation, I thought, you know, what a lifesaver! Fantastic. So exactly what I was looking for. So appreciate you coming on my show to have a chat with us and part with some awesome information to our listeners. So thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Uh, no problem, Jason. I'm uh, happy to be here and happy to help. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.